This is the Mooks and the Gripes podcast. Hello, everybody. I am Trevor, as well as Paul. Paul, I didn't have a very good conjunction today. I kind of winged it there. Sorry about that. That one actually works. (laughs) Worked seamlessly. I didn't even notice. (laughs) And Paul and I are delighted to be joined today by Jackie, who blogs at Jackie Wines Journal. Jackie, welcome to the show. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you very much, both of you. It's uh, an absolute pleasure to be here. So thank you very much for inviting me along. And I'm excited to kind of talk to you today. Well, we have been looking for your name was one of the first ones that we put on our who should we try and talk to on our podcast show. And we've been working on getting this particular episode um, recorded for a while, getting it on our schedules. And but Paul and I have known Jackie as probably about as long as we've known each other online. Would you say that that's true? Maybe yeah. about a decade or two? More yeah, than a decade. So. More than a yeah. decade. Yeah, I think we probably kind of first met through Twitter. Um, and then, Trevor, I, I was listening to um, the previous kind of incarnation mm. of your MOOCs and Gripes podcast when you used to um, podcast <laughs> with your brother, Brian. Yeah. So I think we've been kind of interacting on various fronts for yeah as you say probably 10 years really mm-hmm. and jackie your blog is still very active i feel like probably maybe twice a week or so you post yeah. a new book review on there yeah. and yeah. and i've always loved reading your thoughts you just did one on one of my favorite books of of the year that i've read this year is percival everett's the trees that was the yeah. one you posted earlier on in the Indeed. week Oh boy, that was quite the, quite the book. <laughs> <laughs> it certainly is. Um, the first time I'd read anything by Percival Everett, but with it being long-listed and now short-listed for the book, mm-hmm. I kind of felt I had to read it, and it just sounded um, so outrageously funny, and um, it <laughs> certainly kind of delivered on that front. But um, yeah, a terrific book, and I'm probably quite different from the normal sorts of things that. I've tended to kind of read over mm. the years. So it was kind of quite refreshing to read something different and to, yeah, to have a real success with it. Yeah, it was the one that I said, I, I think on our last episode, Paul, I said, I'm mm-hmm. reading it. And I, I yep. couldn't maybe quote any passages due to the language. <laughs> but <laughs> right. but I, I, I did finish it and ended up loving it so much that I'm I'm trying to figure out where to go next with my personal Everett reading and got a copy mm. of his forthcoming Dr. No, mm. which I just kind of previewed the first, you know, few paragraphs and thought, Oh boy, this just looks fantastic again. But anyway, yeah. <laughs> like I said, the only one I've read so far is so much blue. And if either of you are interested, that one is really good too. Mm-hmm. But as we mentioned mm-hmm. last time, I mean, he has so many books that it could keep us all busy if we decide to go down that rabbit trail for quite a while. I think I said 16, but that was, I was short cutting uh, or short selling that he's got like 21, 22 books out. Wow. Yeah. yeah. And did you know number. that one of them telephone it was a finalist for the Pulitzer a couple of years ago, they actually published it with different endings and they didn't oh. tell anybody until it finally started to kind of pop out that it was the case. Like you can, it, you can tell which one you've got if you know what you're looking for based on, I think the ISBN or some parts of the book, but yeah, they oh, published wow. it with different endings. <laughs> that's crazy. I know. That is, yeah. That's wild. Yeah. I think, anyway, anyway. Um, well, I do have just a few little bits of news that I wanted to, to chat about really quickly. 
Um, first, uh, you folks over in the UK, Jackie, have a, a prize that I love to follow called the Republic of Consciousness Prize, uh-huh. and it's it's a it's basically an award for uh, writers who are pushing what we think a novel can do, you know, with, in mm. writing and in structure, and yeah. they always have a lot of really interesting uh, books on the list, and. One of my friends, Lori Feathers, who is a judge on the Best Translated Book Award with me, she's written some posts for my site, um, has headed bringing the prize to the U.S. There is this very prize going to be happening in the U.S. They've got a prize purse, and it's wow. they're, they're looking for submissions from uh, publishers right now. Uh, I think they're due in November, so any publishers who are listening... Uh, that that's something that I would recommend uh, putting out there, and it's uh, there are more details. I'm I'm still learning a little bit more about it, and I'll put more of the details in our newsletter for this week. But I I missed all of the fanfare of kind of the announcement. I guess you know you you spend a, a, a week or two off of Twitter, mm-hmm. and these things can slip right past you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, but I was I was really excited about that to have that prize uh, have a U.S. Uh, uh, kind of counterpart uh, with the same ethos and and idea behind it. So that sounds awesome. I love the sounds of that prize. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then just another little bit of news. Um, one of my favorite novelists, Javier Marias, passed away this past week at the age of seventy-two, and. Paul, I know that you and I have chatted about doing an episode on him. I think that we will move that up now. It won't be our so. next author focus episode um, that we'll be recording toward the end or the beginning of next, you know, the end of this year or the beginning of next year, but probably the one after that, maybe episode 55 is is what we're thinking. So for all people listening, if you're wanting to catch up on some of Marias's work, for that episode that would come out like next spring, probably Mm -hmm. (laughs) there's some time. (laughs) Yeah. Now I need to do that myself. Actually. It's one of those where you always feel bad when the death of an author is what prompts you to finally, you know, dig into more of their work, but it happens at least for (laughs) me fairly often because I've read a heart so white, but so far that's the only one of his that I've read and I've been meaning to get to more. And sometimes it takes an event like this to kind of make you realize Mm. finally time to do that, you know? Yeah. I've, I mean, I still have some that I haven't read, but he's been a favorite author for for a long time, and so I've been fortunate because I caught up, and I've also been able to keep up. <laughs> but he's, you know, he continued writing up until the end, and we've still got one to be translated into English. I hope it comes out next year, twenty twenty three, for us in English. But is he an author that you read, Jackie? Is he? He is actually. I haven't read one of his for a few years, but um, in total, I've I've probably read maybe half a dozen of his books. Hmm. So I've read the Your Face Tomorrow trilogy, which you know obviously is a remarkable book, and you know could quite easily be an episode of its mm-hmm. in its own right. I would think for your right. show. Um, but my favorite probably is A Heart So White, which I think was the second one I read. And that, I think it kind of touches on so many of his themes of secrets and betrayals and truth and love and mortality. And um, it's just a brilliant example of his style and the sort of long looping sentences and 
the sort of meditative quality of his of his writing. Yeah, I'm I'm really am a fan and was very saddened to hear about his passing. Um, but um, it, it sounds like a good move on your part to devote an episode to him. I'm sure your listeners would be really appreciative to to hear that. Well, and I think you just sold it quite nicely for I us, know. Jackie. That was an eloquent, eloquent way of kind of running through his themes and and some of the reasons that I love his work hmm. so much. So, uh, Paul, I, I hope that you have a chance to read some more of his if you want to. We, we've decided that's not a requirement for these episodes. Paul might show up and just uh, talk about what he wants to get out of Marius. <laughs> we'll <Right>. see. <laughs> no, I think I told you I was in a used bookstore in Seattle last year and stumbled across the entire Your Face Tomorrow trilogy just all right in a row. They're ones I had been kind of keeping an eye out for, and I couldn't believe they were all just sitting right there, mm. um, pristine used copies. So yeah, that would be a good good one. I mean, I, it, like I said, it's been tempting me for quite a while, so maybe mm. now's the time to do it. Well, I, w- I wonder if you'll have if you'll find the time. I'm going to ask you, what have, what have you been reading, Paul? And we'll see how this is all going. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, as you know, there's something that's keeping me busy at the moment. So yeah. All right. Well, go ahead. Tell us what okay. you have been reading. Sure. Yeah. So I have been still making my way through the Brothers Karamazov, um, which is kind of I've decided that's going to be you know pretty much my my September, if not more. Um, yeah. Last last month I had a stack of quite a few small books, and this this month will be very different. It's going to be <laughs> pretty much that. Um, but it's just wonderful. You know, it's it's everything you would hope for from a, a Russian novel. A huge cast of characters. Lots of philosophical and religious, you know, debates and discussions and, you know, all kinds of intrigue. I'm about halfway through. Um, so it's been kind of fascinating to kind of, I mean, I know it's a favorite of yours, Trevor, you know, a big chunk of the first part is fairly plot driven where you're kind of getting introduced to the family and some of the other characters. And then I just got through with the whole section. That's very much the elder kind of holding forth on his deathbed, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. on a lot of these different there, you know, kind of parables and and other things that are going on and lessons that he's trying to teach all of his disciples and everything. And so that part just wrapped up and now I get the feeling I'm kind of headed back into more of the, the brothers and, and their dad and all that. So, yeah, I mean, (laughs) I can, I can see why it's a favorite of yours and I'm looking forward to seeing where it goes next. Well, and it's, it's funny. I think I told you, I can remember where I was at various parts of reading that novel. And that part, I, we were visiting my aunt and uncle uh, because my grandma lived with them. And so, you know, we were, we were at their house and my, I was the only kid, uh, kid. I was, you know, 21 or so, but I mean, I was the only one. And then my parents and uh, other, you know, you know, aunts and uncles who were older, they were all upstairs while I just went downstairs by myself and read all about uh, the priest, you know, giving mm-hmm. his his final advice and and thoughts at the, you know, there. <laughs> so, so uh, that's kind of funny. Kind of funny. It's a good place, you know. You need some quiet time and some isolation to kind of, you know, those passage passages are very readable, but they're they're heavy and they take some. You have to slow down and kind of make your way through them. So I think that sounds like a good setting. All right. Well, Jackie, would you like to join us and tell us what you've been reading too? Yeah. Um, well, obviously, um, we've already talked about The Trees by um, Percival Everett, so I read that recently. Um, the other thing, I guess, that I, I thought was worth mentioning that um, I actually read a little while ago, but I just wrote about it fairly recently, so it's 
kind of fresh in my mind um, is uh, a collection of stories called The Trouble with Happiness by mm-hmm. Tove Ditlifson. Um, I think that's how you pronounce her surname. So she was a, a Danish writer writing in, um, I think, the sort of middle of um, the 20th century. And um, she she published the Copenhagen trilogy, which I think came out, was reissued by Penguin a few years ago. And I think that's out in the US now as well as out over here. And then at some point last year, I think Penguin reissued um, this collection of stories called The Trouble with Happiness. And it's two collections of stories kind of in the one volume so the first volume of stories was originally published as the umbrella and the second collection as the trouble with happiness and they were both I think um, originally out in the sort of early 1960s and when you kind of read the stories and having previously read the Copenhagen trilogy you can kind of see some of the influences in her life, perhaps making their way into these fictional stories. Um, so I think if you like bleakness and sadness <laughs> and isolation, they're going to be very much your thing because um, virtually all of them feature female protagonists and um, women who are isolated in their marriages, who are marginalised by, you know, either cruel or negligent men um and it you know there were so many things in it that kind of resonated with me in terms of uh how you know many women at that time must have felt um you know their lives being kind of controlled and dictated by men and and having very little agency and power of their own really so um it's it's a great collection but i would be um I would be reluctant to kind of uh, <laughs> recommend it to somebody who, you know, wasn't perhaps in the right frame of mind for something that's kind of bleak and hard hitting. They're, they're beautifully kind of crafted stories and very emotionally truthful, but you have to be kind of prepared for, um, you know, a lot of sadness and loneliness and isolation and marginalization. But if writers like Jean Reese, for example, are your kind of thing, then I think, you know, you would probably love these stories because they're they're beautifully written and they kind of tap into those sorts of emotions really so um that's that's what I've been reading recently so not the cheeriest of reads but certainly a um a worthwhile and rewarding one I read that earlier this year I believe and did love it and another author that I might bring up a little bit that I was surprised by would be Barbara Cummins with like our spoons came from Woolworths. Yeah. The, the, the title story umbrellas just really struck me as uh, in a similar kind of Mm. strange vein of, of first person female narrator. Who's got a, a, a very unique perspective as she's trying to get this umbrella and is also quite, um, you know, quite abused by her spouse and neglected by her spouse and just really, you know, connected with, with Barbara Cummins to me Mm. uh, in in that way. I I really think that, that she was a fantastic writer. I still haven't read the, the Copenhagen trilogy Mm. um, though. I have it now and, and 
I'm a, I'm excited too, but also maybe a little bit a little bit nervous. I don't. I'm like, do yeah. I read that in October? I don't. That doesn't feel like an October read. How about November? Well, that's <laughs> not really leading me up to the holiday season quite yeah. cheerily. <laughs> I'm maybe already. A... De- I'm depressed enough in January and February, oh. you know, because of the winter. So <laughs> I don't know yeah. when to read it. <laughs> that's what I was going to say. Is maybe January and February you just lean into the bleakness and go for it? Because go for yeah, it. <laughs> I still need to read the collection of of stories, and uh, it's very high on my list. But as yeah. I've talked about previously, the Copenhagen trilogy. Uh, it's amazing. It's but it's all of those <laughs> things that Jackie so eloquently said. It's bleak and and all those things. I mean, Jean Reese is a really nice comparison. I was just thinking mm. when you said that that she was kind of who I was thinking of at the same time. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like you said, you need to be in the right headspace. But if you are, they can just be really Definitely. powerful. And, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I, I have to say, I absolutely adore Barbara Cummins. So um, it's lovely that you've brought her up. I think she's probably one of my favorite writers. I, I just think she's amazing and. It's just got such a wild imagination and a very kind of uh, a very distinctive delivery. Um, as you mm-hmm. say, that kind of first person narration often delivered in a very kind of um, matter of fact style. Yet actually some of the information that she's conveying mm. to you as a reader is really shocking and, um, you know, kind of quite traumatic at times. But she mm-hmm. just delivers it in this way that... Um, you know, comes across so brilliantly. And and there's kind of quite a lot of strange humor, I think, as well in her books. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, she's, she's definitely a favorite and has become a favorite in recent years. Me too. I hadn't read her until Our Spoons Came from Woolworths came out mm. from NYRB Classics, maybe five years ago or so. And yeah. I, I've been you know, find everything I can find. I've been been trying to get a hold of it and read it. So all right. Well, on my end, I did finish My Phantoms by Gwendolyn Riley that just came out from New York Review Books uh, this past week. And that lives up to the hype for me. <laughs> I, I was not sure. I didn't even know what it was about. I, I, I imported the UK copy when it was published because so many people were were chatting about it. John Self was talking about it as one of the you know, most unique books he's read over or powerful books. I can't remember the adjective he mm. used, but something good <laughs> mm. books that he'd read over several years. And then it came and I never did uh, jump onto it. And then when it was announced that New York Review Books was going to be publishing it, I kind of just sat on it and, and waited. But boy, that was something else. I, uh, on the one hand, it felt so, so not mundane, but I was maybe expecting something quite strange again, maybe like Barbara Cummins or something mm. like that. And it, it isn't. It's a mother-daughter relationship. But at the same time, it is portrayed quite uniquely and with a lot of a lot of questions that arise. And so I thought that was fantastic. And then I started this week, Boxwalla just had a, a book box that they sent out uh, that was curated by Alexander Chi, an American author. Boxwalla usually uh, tries to highlight international authors for an American audience, meaning, you know, hey, let's put a lot of books of translation on this list. Let's, let's, let's bring more authors, um, you know, awareness to international authors, uh, to American readers. But this particular box, I think it's the first one, maybe that's even included American authors in it, but it was specifically curated to highlight 
diverse voices in American authors who are doing fantastic uh, work. And one of the books that came is Alejandro Varela's uh, The Town of Babylon, published earlier this year, and just long listed for the National Book Award, which Mm -hmm. I I had started it. um, And then, you know, I got it, you know, I think maybe last Friday, I started it over the weekend and have been been working on it. And then I was delighted to see that it was shortlisted because this is really an interesting book and and very well written. Um, It is about a man who is going back to his 20th high school reunion and staying with his parents. Uh, he is a gay man. He is also having some marriage problems with his spouse due to some infidelity there. And they're taking, you know, kind of taking a little bit of a break at the same time. Uh, he's going back and visiting this town and this suburbia essentially. And these people that he used to know, including his first boyfriend uh, who is now married and has children and had a hard life. He also knows that one of his classmates, who's now an evangelical minister, probably killed somebody in a homophobic um, incident. And his his brother has passed away of a heart attack um, several years before all of this has happened. I mean, it feel, if you just read that, it's like, okay, you're trying to throw everything in here in the kitchen sink. But it's written in a way that it doesn't feel that way at all. It feels quite natural. And I really like uh, a little paragraph that I'll read. He says, I am unsettled by the past, not a generalized conceptual or theoretical past, but three very real and specific events, all of them deaths, all murders of a sort. The first was undeniable, even if it remains unpunished and its perpetrator, Paul at large. Oh, Paul, not, Uh not this Paul, not this Paul. (laughs) And, and possibly present at this reunion. The second was the inexplicable and abrupt death of my first love. Although no one died, the end of my relationship with Jeremy occurred with the force and expediency of a well-timed blade. The third murder was of my brother, Henry, who died in the most infuriating way one can die, at the hands of a shapeless, invisible system, one that works slowly and surreptitiously and leaves the victim blaming himself until the bitter end. And I thought, this is a really, inner, you know, I think really well done way of bringing so many of these things that again, can feel maybe a little heavy handed together in a way that's like, no, we're going to explore other parts of all of these in one story. And I, I'm really enjoying it. And I'm, I'm, you know, I was pretty thrilled that the, the box put this book out and Alexander Chi uh, curating it because I do miss a lot of these books as they come out. Mm-hmm. Um, my focus is not on American fiction, of diverse voices. It's often focused on, you know, international fiction or just the, you know, the, the, the big American names that I know and just like, Oh, I'll keep reading their, their work. You know, I, Mm -hmm. I rarely, I rarely venture out of that. And this was a nice uh, window to, to say, Hey, I can, I can start doing that better. Yeah. Really, really enjoying it so far. Yeah. It sounds fascinating. All right. Well, listeners, we are here today to talk about a category of novel that I, I I'm very anxious to 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 have all the thoughts come out. I'm very anxious to to hear the the picks because I didn't realize that this is a kind of novel that I do like to read. It's kind of a, a setting more than a than a 
than anything else. Uh, when we contacted Jackie to see if she would like to join us, uh, her suggestion was hotel novels. And so Jackie, when you suggested this as one of your favorite genres of novels, uh, <laughs> what what led you to do that? And um, I'd like to talk maybe uh, briefly about uh, hotel novels in general and get a feel for for what we'll be exploring today. Sure. Um, I think, as you kind of said it in your um, excellent introduction there, Trevor, it's the kind of, I guess it's the setting that is particularly um, appealing, certainly to me, around hotel novels, because the setting um, provides a forum, if you like, um, where different individuals from perhaps a variety of different backgrounds and maybe even different social classes with different um, stories to tell kind of come together in an environment and potentially brush up against one another Um, and various interactions can occur in the communal areas of the hotel that just provide I think a really interesting forum for fiction if you're a writer. I mean, not that I'm personally a writer, but I I guess I've kind of read um, a number of different types of novels over the years. And hotel novels kind of particularly appeal to me because of that environment and that potential for interaction between people who wouldn't necessarily normally interact with one another um, throughout their jobs or their sort of social interactions. And I guess then um, a variation of that that I'm particularly interested in and and might be kind of quite a British variant, I don't know, but there's also the boarding house novel, which, you know, is very popular, I think, in the middle of the 20th century, these sort of seedy down at heel boarding houses where, um, you know, people would go and, uh, you know, if they couldn't afford a flat or an apartment on their own, they could rent a room essentially in somebody's house as a way of, um, you know, being able to to live in a city um, fairly cost effectively. And again, that boarding house environment gives a writer, I think, a fantastic kind of vehicle to... Um, to exploit really for for fictional and creative means, so um, I, I guess that was you know one of the reasons why I suggested it as a topic. And you can kind of have different types of hotel novel, different types of interactions. So, for example, there are uh, examples of novels where you have a, a kind of a large cast of characters, and you have various characters kind of interacting with one another or from different backgrounds different social classes or um, there's another kind of novel where the hotel might be used for say secret assignations like affairs or perhaps other dodgy business where people kind of want to go and be on their own and sort of out of the way of the the kind of public eye So, you know, there are novels, for example, in in that genre. Um, A good example of that is um, a novel called The Blue Room by Simenon, um, where a couple are kind of meeting up in a hotel room and, you know, the story kind of pivots from there. Um, And uh, there, I guess, are other more sinister novels where the hotel might be, um, you know, perhaps the centre of a horror novel or a crime novel or a gothic type of novel. 
um, which again kind of offers a completely different mood and and mindset to the author. So um, I guess that that's why I chose it, and I felt it probably had you know enough scope for us to discuss different types of novels and perhaps bring in a few favourites that we've read over the years. Absolutely. I again, thank you so much for that introduction because it just makes me excited both to have this discussion, but again, this is a fascinating kind of genre of books. And I'm sitting here thinking, you know, it's September, October, November, you know, these months, it just feels like the right time to maybe go and, and get into some of these, you know, whether they're CD or maybe a little spooky or just yeah. in general, getting away from it all and having to deal with other people. <laughs> yeah. I, I think it sounds like, some of these books, I think I'm going to try and make sure that I pick up because I, I know there will be plenty today that I have not read yet. Mm. Um, Paul, any thoughts as as you were kind of contemplating this topic and, you know, after Jackie told us this is what she'd like to talk about? Yeah, no, it's been interesting because I started out, I think, in a certain frame of mind thinking about, you know, a particular sliver of this, which was probably the first first little bit that Jackie talked about, you know different people that are grouped together, you know, maybe in a hotel and, and meeting down in the, you know, the tea room or, or something mm. like that. Like that's where I started. And then the more I started, you know, looking through my bookshelves and kind of Googling around, I started thinking about some of the other things that she mentioned where there's like the seedy aspect of things. Or one thing that kept coming to me is like, sometimes there's, you often think of a hotel as like exciting and exotic and fun, mm. but there's also like, there can be like, I travel for work and there can also be, yeah a loneliness and kind of a sterility to it where every room looks the same. Every hallway looks the same. And like, which city am I in? Like, I don't travel that much, but I know that a lot of the business people I talk to from the inside of a hotel, sometimes you can't even really tell where you are compared to last week or the week before. So I think that's kind of interesting. And then Jackie, you talked about how there's that anonymity, which can lead to seediness or sneakiness or crimes or some of those other things. So yeah, it's really a fascinating topic. The more I thought about it, the more I started to realize like it's not any one thing. There's a whole mm. world here. So I, I'm really glad you recommended it. I think it's going to be a fun discussion. Great. Yeah. I I mean, I I just want to echo you both. I don't know if I have anything brand new or or unique to to say, but I was excited as I've already said because of the the prospect and especially some of the authors that you mentioned at the beginning. I don't know if they'll all come up today, but Jackie, mm. you you said, for example, and, and kind of listed a bunch of books and many of them were authors that I love, but I hadn't read these books yet. Mm. And so I'm I'm just excited to to explore it. And I think you're also right that this seems to be something of a 20th century uh, phenomenon. I mean, there was earlier this year a book called The Glass Hotel, or not earlier this year, it's been a few years now, uh, The Glass Hotel by Emily St. John Mandel. Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, that I thought, oh, I could bring that one up. I read it earlier this year. That's why I said yeah. that that way, I guess. But it doesn't really strike me as a hotel novel. I mean, it's mm. about, in in part, this, this hotel and this area, but it's about a lot of other things even more. So I, I can't bring that up, but it does seem like there was such a, you know, a people traveling, people getting out of their cities, mm. people going international, people uh, looking for breaks. Um, you know, you've got 
uh, more road traveling in in these places too, where you can you can get on the road and, and go for a while and stay in a hotel for an, an evening. Mm-hmm. Um, it just seems like that opened up this particular type of novel to a lot of exploration in the 20th century. And while certainly still still it is that way today, I don't I don't know how many books like this are still being written that aren't maybe more on the yeah. horror end of it, you know, but which some of that might come up today. You know, yeah. I certainly thought of, thought of psycho and mm-hmm. you know, that, that yeah. thing. I mean, I, I grew up in the West. I still live in the West, Paul, you too, you know, watching psycho and realizing I could drive in one of these hotels. I decided to pull over and stay in could yeah. be, could be awful. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there's, so there's, there's that aspect of it as well, that you're, you're kind of putting your trust in, in a proprietor that maybe you don't know. Yeah. And mm-hmm. maybe you're staying at a hotel you know, someone else's, um, place and it might not turn out well, but, mm. uh, anyway, uh, <laughs> a few of those thoughts, um, have either of you read psycho by any chance? I didn't see that either of you were going to bring it up to talk about, I, I haven't either, but of course I've seen the show and my, my brother-in-law just read it and said, that's really, really good. I really loved yeah. it. And I kind of thought, well, I just thought it was, you know, an okay book. That Alfred Hitchcock made into a masterpiece of a movie, but apparently, you know, it's, it's got that too. Uh, But I do think of the the movie where Marion Crane is driving and it's getting later and she's passing maybe more, you know, maybe some places that look a little bit more uh, lit, (laughs) you know, there's more, more lighting, a little bit more civilization. And then she ends up at this, at the Bates uh, the Bates place and of mm-hmm. course you know that that's where all that goes mm-hmm. well be- before we get into our picks we'll talk more about hotels and the various ways that they maybe uh, provide a setting for various things here in a moment but I do have a giveaway to announce uh, Paul we're giving away a fall book box or a fall book reading readers box you know with some treats and some scented things and and a book and some little doodads and you know everything to try and make whoever gets it excited to read in the fall you know to cozy up with the with a good book on one of these days where you can get under a blanket and really enjoy enjoy that that feeling of burrowing down into a into a good book um I thought this was a was a fun idea, and it's something that mm-hmm. I was pretty excited about as far as putting it together and, and all of that. I've still got it all sitting right here on my desk, ready to package up. <laughs> nice. Yeah. So we are ready to, to choose that winner. Any Anything to say before we do that, Paul? No, only that it's been interesting. A few people have kind of shared some of their, or not a few people, everybody has been sharing their different fall mm-hmm. memories. And it just always reminds me of, for the very reasons that you just described. It's such a great time of year for us book lovers. You know, it's just, it seems like one of those perfect times where the weather starts cooling off. And and like you said, you can snuggle into the blanket and a hot drink and just kind of enjoy being what we really are. You know, we all try to fake it in the summer and act like we're uh, (laughs) willing to go outside and do all these things. But then this time of year comes around and we kind of find our true calling, I think. And there is one of those that came in that I would like to... um, to share. Uh, This is from our friend Wendy, Wendy Whitten. And she said, I have a great fall reading story. October of 2018, I think, 
It was a dark and stormy night <laughs> when the power went out. I was home alone and the only light came from the street lamp across the road. The wind howled and moaned down our lane. It really does, I think, because the condos create a tunnel effect. So with the wind howling, tree branches creaking, autumn leaves crackling along the road, and lightning flashes in the distance, I got under my comforter and by the light of the street lamp and candles read Devil's Day, a gothic ritual horror story set in the moors of Lincolnshire by Andrew Michael Hurley. It was a perfect, creepy October reading experience. I doubt I'll ever have an evening like that again. <laughs> oh, perfect. I'm like, I don't know if I want to have an evening like that. That sounds terrifying. <laughs> uh, and I've never read that book, uh, Devil's Day. I don't know if that's what I'd pick out to read on that night, but it does sound perfect. Absolutely perfect. <laughs> sounds like it paid uh, off. <laughs> yes, for sure. And then... Uh, one more that I wouldn't mind wouldn't mind sharing if if uh, if that's okay, folks. Um, this is from Scott. Uh, he says, you know, first off, I enjoyed your latest episode on epic reads and wanted to respond with a few of my favorite fall reading memories for the generous giveaway. Fall is my favorite season of the year, and I have a couple annual reading traditions associated with the season. Edgar Allan Poe has been a favorite of mine since high school, and although I dip into his work throughout the year, I always make a point to revisit a handful of my favorites each fall. These include The Black Cat, William Wilson, William Wilson, Telltale Heart, but this year I have a new favorite to include, The Cask of Amontillado. Uh, I also enjoy visiting Poe's work through other mediums, such as the wonderfully varied and strange readings of his work, like Christopher Walken's reading of The Raven. I don't think I've heard that one. No, I haven't either. <laughs> uh, another fall reading tradition. For the past couple of years, right around Labor Day, I've read Shirley Jackson's The Summer People. I can't say too much about this short story without spoiling it, but the first time I read it was a moment of book serendipity, and it has joined the ranks of my other favorite Jackson works, and it is a quintessential fall read. And then he says, This fall I'm considering revisiting a favorite work. If it's Beowulf, Bradway, Ligotti... Bronte or something else entirely. I look forward to it. So, and we got several others. I, I I won't keep sharing them, not because they're not worthy or not because they don't want to, but you know, um, we just need to need. I, I would like to move on uh, with the this this hotel episode. But um, Jackie, I kind of wanted to give you a chance to chime in if you have. I'm putting you on the spot here, but if you have a favorite fall reading memory or something that you maybe maybe not even a specific memory but maybe a tone that you love because it kind of only comes out in the fall or something like that oh gosh um (laughs) i i would say actually that um i find shirley jackson's work um i know we've already just mentioned shirley jackson but I, I do find myself drawn to her work um, as this season tends to kick in, especially as we approach Halloween, because I just think she's she's perfect, really, um, for the season. In fact, um, a couple of years ago, I chose um, uh, We've Always Lived in the Castle um, as a Halloween kind of related read for, for my book group. Um, and the, the reactions actually were, were quite varied. Um, I think, you know, a couple of people in the, in the group really, really took to it and, you know, really enjoyed it and found it, you know, fascinating and could relate to Mary Cat as a character. 
but there were um, certainly a few people in the book group who were really quite spooked out by it and very much went back <laughs> to Wendy's um, reading experience of, you know, uh, kind of having that, that sort of spooky mood being amplified really by, by the book. So I, I guess my thoughts tend to turn to Shirley Jackson. So I'm kind of eyeing um, my shelves at the moment to kind of see what I might be able to pull down that would be a suitable um, September read, you know, maybe transitioning into October with Shirley Jackson. Oh, well, we read, Paul, what was the name of the book we read last year? Hangs a Man. Hangs a Man. Yeah. That's right. We read that last year for the podcast, yeah. and that was a lot of fun. Yeah, about I'm this kind time of considering of reading that one because it's one Man. of the ones I haven't yet read. So that book um, is like an earworm where. Yeah. I just find myself, it just pops up in my head unexpectedly all the time. It is such mm. an odd and fascinating book. I would, yeah. if you're looking for something, that would definitely be an interesting one. Yeah, yeah. that could well be the one I'm going to go for. So. Yeah. Well, happy fall, everybody. I'll, I will now announce the winner. Um, the winner this time is Christy Chess. Christy, congratulations. A happy fall to everybody. But in particular, Christy, we hope that our, this box makes your fall maybe just a little bit happier. Yeah. <laughs> or at least emphasizes the happiness of, of fall. Yeah, congratulations, Christy. That's yeah. exciting. All right. Well, thanks for that. Um, again, I kind of feel like this hotel novels, I, I don't know how many of these are going to take place in the fall, but I, I feel like we might get a few that, that will be suitable fall reading as well. Definitely. Um, but let's go ahead and get started. Uh, Jackie, would you mind kicking us off and tell, you know, yeah, we're, sure. we're all going to share three uh, fall reading books and we'll kind of go in a round robin style. And again, uh, I, I'd, I'd recommend listeners get out um, a pen and paper and, and write some of these down. Uh, but yeah, Jackie, go ahead and kick us off. Okay. Um, so my, my first choice is a novel um, by uh, Vicky Balm. And the novel is called Grand Hotel, and it was published, <clears throat> I think, originally in 1929. And it's set in Weimar-era Berlin um, in a very glamorous hotel, obviously called the Grand Hotel in Berlin. And it's one of the, the kind of hotel novels that, I guess, falls into the first category that I mentioned in the introduction, where you've got a cast of characters who all end up in the hotel at the same time um, and they've traveled there for different reasons and they're they've all got kind of different personalities and different backgrounds and through the course of their time in the hotel they interact with one another you know bump into one another as Paul was saying kind of in the tea room in the lounge in the dining room or in the reception area and um you know, some of these interactions happen. And the the kind of central idea, I think, of the book is that our lives can be changed, sometimes quite radically in terms of direction, um, by potentially seemingly quite small encounters with people. Um, and these, these changes can set our lives off into a completely different direction. And that's very much the kind of idea that Vicky Baum is playing with here. Um, so, for example, um, 
some people who come to the hotel are kind of on the way down almost and something happens to them at the hotel um, they interact with somebody and all of a sudden their life kind of turns around goes into a different direction and they find themselves kind of coming out more on an upward trajectory um, and it changes their life for the better whereas other people kind of come in and almost have a little bit of a fall from grace or uh, a little bit of a reckoning perhaps with something and again, it's catalyzed by one or two interactions that they have at the hotel. And, you know, they, they kind of emerge somewhat diminished. So it's a fantastic novel that I think is very cleverly constructed with all of these different act, uh, interactions playing out. And she kind of writes it in chapters so that you get a focus on each of the characters and you kind of follow their path through the, the hotel and see how their lives have changed really over the course of their time there um and you, you've got you know a really wonderful cast of characters you've got um probably the central character is a kind of slightly down at heel downtrodden bookkeeper who's kind of scrimped and saved all his life and he's found out he's only got a couple of weeks to live so he's come to this glamorous hotel really with all of his life savings to kind of have a wonderful two weeks before, you know, his, his time on earth runs out. And he's there to experience life and, you know, he wants to kind of soak it all up. So he's kind of looking for some frills and spills and, you know, he kind of gets, he gets some of that when he's at the hotel. Um, and then you've got uh, a charming baron who appears, you know, very dashing and the kind of centre of attention. But, you know, there's a darker side to his personality and all of that comes out during you know his time at the hotel you've got a ballerina a Russian ballerina who was um, once uh, at the top of her game but has now sort of fallen into obscurity and is playing half empty houses um, and you know she she's kind of quite lonely and vulnerable and She's never experienced love, so it doesn't kind of take a genius to work out what might happen to her at the hotel. Um, and you have all of these, you know, different little stories going on within this environment. And it's so cleverly constructed. And there's a really lovely balance of light and shade within the novel. So you've got some wonderful, funny, charming, uplifting moments, but also, you know, some moments of real poignancy and darkness um, so it, it's just a really nice balance, hugely entertaining, hugely enjoyable. I think it was a you know massive success when it was published and it got turned into a stage adaptation and then turned into a film, um, very famous film with Greta Garbo and also Joan Crawford was in it. So um, that really was my first choice just because I kind of feel in a way it's almost the quintessential <laughs> hotel novel. Yeah. Um, and a perfect example of that kind of, you know, multiple interaction kind of um, idea really being executed brilliantly. Wow. I've had that on my shelf for a long time. And now immediately when we're done recording, I'm going to go grab it off and, <laughs> and set it somewhere where I can't ignore it any yeah. longer because that was a yeah. wonderful description. It sounds fascinating. Yeah, I did wonder if either of you had read it because it's an NYRB classics book. Mm -hmm. And obviously I know your lovers of um, the, the NYRB classics. 
I have. I it, yeah. it would have been on my list, but before we came on here, we all t- kind of texted what the author's initials were, right. and I saw that you had VB, and I thought, oh, perfect. I'll let Jackie handle that. <laughs> um, uh, because I had not read it. The only The only knowledge I had of Grand Hotel actually came from Billy Wilder's 1960 film with Jack Lem- Lemon and and Shirley MacLaine, The Apartment, oh, because it's wonderful. the film he's sitting down and thinks, oh, I'm going to have a night in. Um, no one's renting my apartment yeah. for their illicit, you know, things. Tonight, I'm going to watch Grand Hotel, and he keeps getting interrupted, and things keep yeah. happening. And so I didn't know, I didn't even watch the movie yet. And then in 2016, NYRB Classics published it uh, in a translation. Uh, it, I don't know exactly how fresh this one was, but it was mm. uh, translated by Basil Creighton, That's and then with smart. revisions yeah. by Margot Betauer dembo um, and I thought it was fantastic. Yeah. And the, the loneliness of some of the characters, I think of the, 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 uh, damaged veteran, uh, Dr. Otternschlag. Yeah, o- yeah. I still remember parts of, of his little story, um, yeah. where, and, and I really like how Vicky Baum puts it. Uh, Dr. Otternschlag lived in the uttermost loneliness, although the earth is full of people like him yeah. and just, yeah, I, I loved it. So, Paul, yes, you, you yeah. certainly should uh, should go j- grab it off the shelf. <laughs> yeah. T- twist my arm, I will. Yeah. <laughs> we'll see how many more we can get you to pull off the shelf as the episode goes on. <laughs> yeah, that's the problem. As you can probably see in the background, I already have teetering stacks next to our bedside table. I'll just have to add to those. <laughs> All right. Well, Paul, what one are you going to make us put on our stack? Sure. Well, this is one. I, I don't know if for you, Trevor, it would be putting it back on your stack because I know you've read it. I don't know if if you've read it yet, Jackie, or not, but it's an author we've talked a lot about on this podcast in the past, but I don't think we've actually talked about this particular book very much. Martin Dressler by Stephen Milhauser. Oh, I love um, it. Yeah. So like I said, we've talked about him a lot um, and not particularly this book, which is kind of funny because it's probably his most successful, at least based on awards. It won the 1997 Pulitzer Prize for Fiction, and it was also a finalist for the 1996 National Book Award. So, um, you know, it basically it follows the eponymous character, Martin Dressler, from his time as a youth in New York City, right around, you know, it's right around the turn of the century. So late 1800s, and then it starts off into the 1900s. Um, And one of the things that's so magical about this book is Milhauser's amazing ability to capture a time and a place. And I actually stumbled when I was doing some searching, Trevor, across uh, something that you wrote about this book quite a few years ago, I think. And, and you had said his evocation of old New York was striking. The past seems so real. It's haunting. I feel as if I were there haunting the past. And that's definitely a great description. Just he's mm-hmm. so good at plunging you into the streets and there's this excitement going on. You know, there's all this technology that's sprouting up and, you know, hustle and bustle of the city, which is just so well done. So, you know, the book follows Martin from his time. He starts off working in his father's cigar shop. And then over time, he starts working as a bellboy at the Vanderlyn Hotel. And while he's there, he starts to kind of get an idea of what goes on within a hotel as far as, you know, management and running the hotel and and seeing all the guests come in and out and customer service and all these types of things. Um, You know, he's promoted to a bellboy there. And then he starts, he's the kind of person who's always thinking and planning and, and wants bigger things. And, um, I'll just read this short passage that describes his personality. It says, the spectacle interested him, interested him deeply. 
though it came over him that he wasn't particularly eager for a way of life represented by marble and gilt and feathered hats. No, what seized his innermost attention, what held him there day after day in noon reverie, was the sense of a great elaborate structure, a system of order, a well-planned machine that drew all these people to itself and carried them up and down in iron cages and arranged them in private rooms. He admired the hotel as an invention, an ingenious design, a kind of idea like a steam boiler or a suspension bridge. But could you say that a bridge or a steam boiler was an idea? In the warm, bright lobby, Martin's thoughts would grow confused, as if he'd been falling into a fantastic dream. So I just, I really, Milhauser to me, he's so good at those little moments where he just perfectly captures a mood or a character's thoughts. And I think he does a wonderful job in this of, of capturing the spirit of, of Martin Dressler and how he's always fascinated, like it said there, with machines and the order and the systems of a hotel, which is something we haven't necessarily talked about yet today. But just that idea of mm. it's a, when it's done right, it's a, it's a well-oiled machine and people come and go and the guests, if you know, depending on the setting, they may never actually notice all the hustle and bustle that's going on in the background. And so I thought that was kind of an interesting um, view of it as well. So over time, he starts to build hotels and he starts with fairly traditional hotels, but his aspirations are always for more, more, more. And anybody who's read Milhauser knows that if there's one thing he's good at, it's these fantastical ideas. And so I don't want to read too much, but there's one more section um, that I want to talk about here where as he starts to build these bigger and crazier hotels, um, it says the new Dressler opened on August 31st, 1902 on Martin's 30th birthday. The 24 story building with its seven underground levels and a massive basement was advertised as the largest family hotel in the world, a claim immediately attacked by a journalist in the sun who asked whether it could be properly called a hotel at all. Harwinton, who had foreseen the question and secretly encouraged it, that's his uh, media manager, promptly flooded the city with mysterious posters reading, more than a hotel, a way of life. The critics were divided over certain features, such as the three-story entrance arch, decorated with 24 statues of American historical and cultural figures, or the arched bridges spanning the exterior court at the level of the 12th floor, or the profusion of ornamentation from the small terracotta scenes representing American industry on the Gothic window surrounds, to the bands of painted tiles running along the base of each wrought iron balcony and representing New York scenes, both historical and contemporary. And then it goes on and on, but it continues to build. And this hotel, I mean, it's got a little bit of Borges to it, I would say. And as the novel goes on, there's actually another hotel that takes it even to crazier levels. And so it's kind of this interesting, it's like a fantastical view of everything that a hotel could be. But, you know, as he goes on, there are entire floors that are like, basically, it, it takes on a little bit of like an amusement park where he recreates entire parks. There's rooms you can stay in that are like a cave or a forest and things like that. So oh. to me, it's it's a very fascinating novel because it captures the idea, I think, of like the stereotype of the American dream, but also how it's never enough. And it always keeps building and building to sometimes ridiculous and unnecessary levels, um, but all done with Stephen Milhauser's amazing ability to, I don't know, he has such a magical way of putting things that, you know, I, I found it absolutely fascinating. So Trevor, I know you've, you've read this one. Is there anything you'd want to tag on there? Oh, I think you put it very, very well. Uh, and I, I, I agree. Anyone else 
going into that amount of just crazy zaniness, mm-hmm. you know, it's kind of kind of more like Caesar Ira kind of mm-hmm. levels of you just can't believe you're like, oh, he went, he was, he's going so far, and then the next chapter he goes even even deeper and more mm. weird. And I, you know, some people can just do that in a way that keeps you smiling, you know, the whole time. Yeah, uh, and definitely this one is is there. I kind of feel like it's one of these books that won the Pulitzer that nobody really talks about or remembers, even people who, you know, talk a lot about books. Um, I don't know. I don't know why that mm. is. I think it should be should be more widely um, considered as a as a really great Pulitzer winner. But I do too because I I hate the word readable, but I can't think of a better way to say it. I mean, it is just very compelling. It's very straightforward and, and it pulls you along with just following mm-hmm. this young man's life, you know, so it has somewhat of a traditional arc in some ways where he's meeting a girl and some of these other things as he's building his career. But then it has these other elements that I've touched on that to me make it really interesting. I don't know, Jackie, are you familiar with that book at all? I'm not, um, but I'm making a note of it because it does sound absolutely remarkable, to be honest. I have to confess I'd never heard of it um, until you've mentioned it, but it it does really sound um, incredibly interesting and, you know, a great example of a hotel novel, definitely something different. Yeah, I I could have read several more passages because he's (laughs) so good at describing hotels as as an organism or Mm. a world contained unto itself. And there was three or four that I had jotted down. If we had more time, I would read them. But that aspect of it too, of just a different angle of like, once you're in a hotel, like I'm going to Las Vegas next week and it's not my favorite place in the world, but it's that whole idea of when you're inside the belly of one of these big hotels, in some ways it's like its own little world and you can kind of lose track of time and everything else. So it's another interesting aspect of it. And even though it's a Pulitzer winner, I, I think it translates quite well to general interest. Like, I don't think it's just about America or just about New York mm-hmm. City. Mm. So I, I, but I would be curious about your thoughts, Jackie, if you get to it. Yeah. For sure. I, I mean, certainly the, um, you know, you talked about the old New York kind of setting that that certainly um, is something that would resonate with me for sure, because I tend to really love novels with that kind of setting and, feel to them so yeah for sure i'll um i'll seek that one out well my first choice is one that i i think i don't know my my list is very maybe obvious (laughs) but it's one of my favorite books and has been for a long time so i wanted to go with it it's em forrester's a room with a view and maybe it's not the first thing that pops into mind with a hotel novel but It is about a young woman. Uh, Lucy Honeychurch is on a tour of Italy with her cousin, kind of an elderly spinster, uh, Charlotte Bartlett, uh, taking her around. And they are staying in Florence in the Pensione Bertolini. (laughs) And as the novel begins, they're very disappointed because they were told that their room would have a view of the Arno and it doesn't. It just has a view of this courtyard out outside, and so they're running around trying to figure out how to get a new a new room or how to get what they were were told would be okay. In the process of doing so, they meet a lot of the other people who will become characters in the book, um, including some love interests that maybe might be a little bit dangerous for Charlotte. You know, I mean, it's it's just it it kind of to me has this quintessential 
you get a lot of people who come together and it's kind of that old style where they really do come together in these, in this hotel or, you know, this pension, uh, because they are, they're basically going to have their meals together. You know, they might go on some of these tours together. They, they're all here in Florence as tourists. Um, she's carrying around her Baedeker. <laughs> it's just a little embarrassing for, for some. And, uh, they're going to be competing with each other about who is more cultured, who, you know, where does, where does the gossip start and, and, end when you don't really know these people, but you're trying to. And so, you know, you start talking about that, that dour young man over in the corner who doesn't seem very friendly and you make friends with, with the, the Reverend who uh, Mr. Beeb, who is, you know, very friendly and, and willing to help out. And, you know, these people really don't know each other, but they're coming together in a foreign land um, where they also have to deal with their own ideas of, of culture and how culture should be. And they're scandalized when, you know, one of their Italian drivers uh, might be a little bit uh, more interested in the, the, the woman that he brings with them. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, you know, he shouldn't have done that. He shouldn't have brought a woman with him, you know, on, basically on a date for their little tour of, of the countryside. Of course, Forrester isn't necessarily just interested in the hotel, but but I did feel like since it has the in the title, A Room with a View, you know, he, he's interested in Lucy's uh, opening up her perspective and and getting away from this this boxed in feel where you just have a, a, a view of the, of the courtyard to where you can have a view of the nature and of the tumultuousness of all of that. And the, the, the violence and the passion that can come when you get out of the, uh, out of the, 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 your room and start interacting with some of these people on a, on a different level. Uh, so anyway, again, part part of me was like, oh, I love to bring up books that that maybe people haven't read. I assume everybody has already read this book and probably seen the Merchant Ivory film adaptation, which I also think is is fun and fantastic. Um, but I don't know, maybe, maybe you haven't yet. Uh, Jackie, Paul, any thoughts on Forrester's A Room with a View? Um, I have to confess that I haven't read the book, um, but it's <laughs> it's actually on my shelf, um, so I do intend to read it. But um, Foster, um, Foster is probably a bit of a gap in in my mm. reading. Um, I've read Howard's End, but um, but not A Room with a View. But I, I guess I know the story from the hope from the film, um, mm-hmm. the Merchant Ivory film that you mentioned. Yeah. I'm maybe going to do something bad here and say that might be good enough. The the film I think is such (laughs) a great adaptation that my wife had seen the film and really loved it and actually had a harder time getting into the book. If I remember correctly, I I used the book in my master's thesis. I mean, I do love it, but, but I don't know how much of it is, is now mixed with just the whole experience of the story in either medium. So, yeah. Yeah. I have read it and I'm glad you mentioned it actually, because I think it, it is kind of that, you know, I don't, I don't remember specifically if it's kind of the grand tour, but it, kind of that Henry James, um, you know, where. Oh, why didn't I put yeah. any Henry James on my list? There's thousands I know. of I had them. Him, I had him listed as an honorable mention, but just that whole idea. I, I think it's an important aspect of the hotel novel that I really enjoy of just that idea of like the grand tour going off and kind of mm. being yeah. shown other parts of the world in this very guided chaperoned kind of way that often 
you know, creates these other, you know, not so guided and chaperoned moments. I think <laughs> yeah, it's a lot of fun. I, there's there, there's actually now that you bring up Henry James and we're talking about this, a lot of these um hotel novels that I'm thinking of now do have there's this young person in the mix. Mm-hmm. How do we protect that person from what getting it involved in this other world might might bring? So right. we want to expand yeah. their world, but only in the ways that we choose. Right. Yeah. yeah. We want them to see certain things so that we can show the shame of those things. <laughs> right. But only a glimpse. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Um, also, uh, Elizabeth Bowen's first novel, her debut novel called The Hotel, might hmm. be um, kind of aligned um, to to this kind of subject as well. So it's um, very much set amongst that kind of society set in the 1920s, kind of the upper echelons of society. And and as he was saying, Paul, there's a younger person kind of in, in the mix there. And mm-hmm. um, yeah, I think that, that's another kind of great example. And I'm not sure there's a grand tour um, from the hotel in that one, but there, there's definitely some interesting interactions between the ages in that novel. Mm-hmm. So that, I don't know if you've, either of you have read it, but um, if, you or your listeners haven't read it but are interested in you know as you say the books by Edith Wharton, Henry James, Forster then the hotel by Elizabeth Bowen would be worth a look. I put it I have a list of hotel novels that popped up as I was researching the topic yeah that I wanted to read and that's on my list so I'm glad to hear your good opinion of it as well. Yeah. All right well Jackie what is your next book? So my next one, um, I'm going for slightly darker territory in this one. Um, It's a book by one of my favourite writers. And I think, Trevor, um, uh, I I sense a a bit of a resonance here because it's by William Trevor, um, (laughs) who I I know is one of your favourite writers. And Paul, I, I can't recall actually how much William Trevor you've read or how much whether you like him or not but I I certainly know that Trevor is is a fan Mm -hmm. Um, and this particular novel was published in 1969 and it's called Mrs Eckdorf in O'Neill's Hotel and it's set in a hotel in Dublin and this place uh, was once sort of quite high standing in the city but has now kind of very much faded over the years so it's now really quite seedy and very dilapidated so it's really the complete opposite from the wonderful glamorous setting of um, Vicky Bounds novel Grand Hotel Um, and the the novel's catalyst if you like is uh, the titular Mrs Eckdorf and she's quite an annoying invasive woman who has somehow kind of fashioned a career as a photographer for herself. And she kind of goes around the world exploiting the lives of rather unfortunate, downtrodden individuals who have experienced some kind of tragedy or or devastation in their lives. And she kind of ferrets out their stories and then uses them to, uh, to turn into... Uh, books that she then you know publishes and markets and accompanied by her photography 
So they're, they're sort of kind of like coffee table books of that time, but very much kind of playing on tragedy and devastation. So they're almost a forerunner of the poverty porn type mm. um, phenomenon that we've kind of seen in recent years. Um, and she's kind of towards the start of the novel, she's, she's on a ship and she manages to hear from a bartender of this hotel, the O'Neill's Hotel in Dublin, and sort of senses there's some kind of great tragedy in the past. So she goes to Dublin and works her way up to the hotel, finds it with the explicit um, kind of intent on inveigling into the lives of the family that own the hotel and sniffing out whatever um, kind of sinister rumours and gossip and tragedy has occurred in the past to then take that and along with her photographs to then exploit it and turn it into her next book. So it so happens that when she turns up, the um, the proprietor of the hotel, who's now in her 90s and happens to be deaf and mute, um, is approaching her 92nd birthday. So there's going to be a sort of a gathering at the hotel. So Mrs. Eckdorf is very well placed to kind of shoehorn her way into this gathering and to, you know, take lots of photos and then turn it into one of her books. So um, Mrs. Sinnott, to communicate with other people, she's been keeping a, a whole host of notebooks and diaries over the years. And um, Mrs. Eckdorf kind of manages to get sight of these and sort of uses them as source material for, you know, for her work. And I guess it's an example of, you know, some of the, the things that William Trevor does so well. I think during that, that kind of period of his career, um, I think he, he wrote a lot about um, life's cruelties, um, the small kind of cruelties of life and perhaps how some people could get exploited and be taken advantage of um, in certain different ways. And I think that this particular book kind of plays on that idea and it, it's quite sad and sinister in some places but also there's a kind of a wicked seam of humor running through it as well if you kind of stand back from the spectacle that you're observing it's kind of like a, one of those great comic tragedies or tragedy comedies that William Trevor does so well blending that sort of poignancy and feeling of desperation and focus on life's disappointments and cruelties together with flashes of really dark, kind of wicked humour. Um, so it, it's potentially not a book for everyone, because as I say, it's kind of, it is quite malevolent and quite seedy in some ways, but um, it, it does have a certain appeal for me um, and cuts a very different atmosphere and tone to the Vicky Balm that I, I kind of talked about earlier. So... Um, that's my second choice, really. I, I don't know if either of you have read it or whether it's a book that you've got or uh, have heard about, but I'd be interested in your thoughts. I have not read it. It Paul mentioned earlier, it's too bad when the death of an author, is that's the reason you start to finally read him. With William Trevor, I almost feel like mm. his death made me stop reading him, not because I didn't want to, but because that 
I know that every book I read, it's one less that I have new to read. Yeah. Um, of course, he was so prolific that I will be dead before I have read them all, even if I made it a you know a goal to read a, a you know more regularly, um, because he he just has so many. But uh, both novels and short stories, I'm throwing mm. in there. But this is one that I've had on my uh, on my bookshelf for for a few years now. Mm. After after you know, I think it's Penguin in the UK released them with a lot of okay. his novels with those yeah. really lovely black and white covers, uh, photograph covers. Mm-hmm. I've been wanting to to keep collecting those, and this is one that I bought. Uh, you know, I guess 2016. Um, the reason I remember that is the 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 exchange rate went down so low due to Brexit that I was able to pick them up, um, import them at quite a reasonable rate. Uh, That's why I remember that, but I haven't read it yet. Uh, But this so far, so Paul, you're, you're, you're grabbing um, the grand hotel and I am going to grab Mrs. Eckdorf in O'Neill's hotel (laughs) after this episode's over. (laughs) Yeah. I think I'll probably grab that one too. Cause I have read some William Trevor. (laughs) I I read love and summer by him, which was amazing. And I've read some of his short stories, but I wouldn't say he's a blind spot because I've read a little bit, but he's one of those authors where it's like, why have I not read more of his stuff yeah. based on how much I loved him? But so, yeah, that one sounds yeah. wonderful, though. I th- I'd be really interested, Paul, how you find um, Mrs. Ekdorf compared to Love and Summer, because I think Love and Summer is probably one of my favorite books by William Trevor. Mm-hmm. And I think it's um, more compassionate and more sympathetic and humane in a way mm-hmm. um, than Mrs. Eckdorf. However, that's not to kind of say that Mrs. Eckdorf is, um, you know, untrue in any way. I, I think it's very true to the characters and the situation that Trevor is writing about, but it's just very different tonally. Um, mm. And he's looking, I guess, at different actions and motivations much more sinister motivations and exploitative motivations here where people can be taken for a ride um, because certain individuals want to want to use their stories really for their own gain so I think it shows Mm -hmm. us some of the darker sides of humanity much darker than the the kind of subject matter that he's exploring in love and summer and it's quite interesting I think I've been trying to read William Trevor's books in order and a lot of his kind of early to mid-period books have this real darkness in them this this kind of dark heart of humanity very much comes out and I think he mellows somewhat with age and Love and Summer because it's kind of towards the end of his career is a very very different so I'll, I'll be fascinated in particular how you find Mrs Eckdorf and any other books from that early to mid period of Trevor's career to um, you know to your experiences of love and summer and, and some of the short stories yeah that's really fascinating it's sometimes it seems like authors can mellow with age and sometimes it can, yeah. can go the <laughs> other way yeah um, so that's that's an interesting project that's that's a cool way to do it so yeah i'll definitely report back as i make my yeah. way through more trevor but that one does sound really good um trevor do you want me to right. move on to my second choice sure yeah please okay so my second choice is actually a little bit of a cheat because it's not a, a novel it's a short story um and the short story is called the hospice and it's by robert aikman um, oh, wow. So it comes from this collection called Cold Hand in Mine. 
And I don't know, uh, Trevor, this is a little bit of a preview because, you know, spoiler alert, but mm-hmm. Trevor and I are actually <laughs> going to be exploring another Robert Aikman for a future October episode. And that might give you mm-hmm. anybody who's not familiar with him a little insight into what he's like. He's a fascinating writer. <laughs> um, our friend Bill Ryan online, I know he's been a big fan of his for years and years. Um, he's often described as someone who specializes in the weird, not really horror, but more of this feeling of uneasiness or, or being unsettled and you never quite get a grasp on what's going on. I came across a couple of really good um, descriptions of his. The Guardian describes his work as focusing on, quote, characters straying into or being unwittingly drawn towards mysterious spaces beyond everyday reality. Mm-hmm. And I really liked that. Um, and then Neil Gaiman said, reading Robert Aikman is like watching a magician work. And very often, I'm not even sure what the trick was. All I know is that he did it beautifully. Yes, the key vanished, but I don't know if he was holding a key in his hand to begin with. So I liked those two quotes just for that feeling of often you don't really know exactly what you're experiencing, but he is so good at creating moods and and feelings where you know you're just you're uneasy and you don't know why. Mm. So this particular story, like I said, it's called the hospice and it's not in, you know, the American and I would assume the UK kind of the common way of using it these days where, you know, maybe it's more of a end of life type of thing. This is more of a, of a hotel. I was looking it up just to make sure what the hospice could be referring to. And the couple of the definitions I came up with were a lodging for travelers, especially one right, one run by a religious order. And it says originally a medieval guest house or way station for pilgrim, pilgrims and travelers. And then somebody else said hospice can also simply mean hospitality. You know, it comes from medieval times mm-hmm. when people opened up their homes for weary travelers. And so I think that he was probably playing with all of those ideas when he came up with this. When you were talking about Psycho earlier, Trevor, this was one that definitely made me think of, of Psycho because... In this story, there's a man named Mayberry, and he's traveling for work, and he kind of ends up taking this detour based on somebody's recommendation and goes off into the countryside, um, off the beaten path, and he ends up lost way out in the middle of nowhere. And so he's getting low on gas or petrol, um, and he is kind of going through this weird neighborhood that kind of seems like it's old-fashioned, which is where you start to wonder, has he maybe made it? somewhere into the past or you know you don't know what's going on because the descriptions are very very odd so he gets out of his car and he's just kind of walking around you know in a little bit of a panic trying to figure out what he should do and this creature which he thinks is probably a cat kind of leaps out of the bushes bites his leg disappears and he never really gets a good idea so from the very beginning you're starting to get this you know uneasy feeling and it just keeps getting ramped up and ramped up so eventually he comes across this this hotel or hospice and he makes his way into it. And, you know, he isn't exactly sure what to think, but he's thinking maybe he could just try to call his wife and say where he is. But they say, no, I'm sorry, we don't have a we don't have a telephone here. And so, you know, he's, he's starving. So they're like, oh, it's time to eat. So why don't you come into our dining room? And so he makes his way into the dining room and, and it's a very odd place where there's all these people that are sitting there. And I'm just going to read a short excerpt here. It says, as he sits down there, he's being waited on. And it says, Mayberry was hungry, as has been said, but he was faintly disconcerted to realize that one of the middle-aged women was standing quietly behind him as he consumed the not inconsiderable number of final spoonfuls. The spoons seemed very large also, at least for modern usages. 
The woman removed his empty plate with a reassuring smile. The second course was there. As she said it before him, the woman spoke confidentially in his ear of the third course, it's turkey tonight. Her tone was exactly that in which promise is conveyed to a little boy of his favorite dish. It was as if she were Mayberry's nanny, even though Mayberry had never had a nanny, not exactly. Meanwhile, the second course was a proliferating elaboration of pasta, plainly homemade pasta, probably fabricated that morning. Cheese and fairly large granules was strewn across the heap from a large porcelain bowl without Mayberry being noticeably consulted. And so it goes on and and they keep bringing him food, tons and tons of food. And he notices that everybody around him is just not talking. They're just like shoveling in these vast quantities of food and he's getting full, you know, and, and kind of getting like, what is going on here? And so finally he finishes one of the, one of the uh, plates that's brought to him and there's like a third of it left. And the lady keeps kind of politely, but kind of creepily insisting that he finishes it. And finally he's like, no, thank you. I'm done. She takes his dish and just slams it on the floor. Food sprays everywhere. <laughs> And nobody around him really notices they all just keep eating. And so anyway, this is kind of just giving you an idea of this. There's something very odd going on and you don't really know what it is. And so I don't want to give away too much because it is a short story, but, you know, he talks to the proprietor and the proprietor apologizes. I'm so sorry that she broke that dish, you know, and, and so he's kind of like obsequious, but still creepy. And so he's going to help Mayberry maybe figure out if he can get some gasoline and so they go out to the garage and this kind of like henchman guy comes out and they're starting to work on it. And then all of a sudden he's like, well, no, your your car takes petrol. Well, we only have diesel fuel here. I'm sorry. You're just going to have to stay the night. And so it just continues to ramp like that, where there's like these little glimmers of maybe he'll be able to get out of there. But more and more things start to go wrong. But even then, as as he starts to spend the night and other things happen, it never quite, every time you start to get an idea of where you think it might go. That's not where it goes. So I'll kind of leave it at that for now, but it's just a very odd, unsettling book. And what I thought it touched on as far as the hotel was, first of all, that feeling sometimes where you come into what might be considered an established place where it seems like everybody else knows what they're doing and you don't. So it's kind of a stranger in a strange land kind of a feeling. But also what we were talking about with Psycho, where increasingly this may not be the case now that in the modern world, but I think you could probably still, if you got off into certain corners of the world, you could find those kind of mom and pop run places, you know, maybe a bed and breakfast would be a good Mm -hmm. example where like we were saying earlier, you are kind of putting yourself at the mercy of these people. And once you're there, you know, you don't always know what's going on or what the established routines are. Mm -hmm. So there's lots of room for maybe sinister things to happen as well. So very odd, very strange, but very fascinating short story. (laughs) Well, back in 2016, Backlisted Pod did an episode on Robert Aikman. I want to say they read The Hospice. Do you remember if that's the case, Paul? Or like read it on the the episode? They may have read a different one, but for I remember that reason, episode. Yeah, I can't remember if they read that one. I do think it's one of his most with, well-known mm-hmm. stories for sure. Yeah, Andrew Mail um, mm-hmm. was was on that episode with them, and I I could be wrong, but I. I Kind of, I mean, at, at the very least, uh, Andrew reads uh, an, a, a story and it is fantastic to listen to. But I kind of think it might be that one. I could be wrong. Yeah. But. No, very well, maybe. It's it's one of his more well-known and, and justifiably so because I, I've i only read this one collection and I plan to read more of his stuff. But to me, it kind of encapsulates mm. everything that I've heard 
and and so far my experience of him of just that feeling of not really knowing what's going on and and like Mm. i said you have that there's a dread to it but you can't quite put your finger on why because there are specific things that happen but it never quite leads to where you think it's going to go so yeah it's it's very Mm -hmm. interesting but i thought it was kind of a a good look at kind of another aspect of of Mm. you know getting stuck in a place where you are not exactly sure where you are or what's going on that sounds that sounds amazing actually um paul just um just before we move on the robert aikman i i haven't read him before um but i've long wanted to read him probably ever since the backlisted episode because i mm-hmm. do remember them covering him um so i am definitely going to seek him out and that, yeah that sounds absolutely terrific Great. And speaking of our friends at NYRB, they came out with a collection a few mm. years back called Compulsory Games, which yeah. I believe is kind of maybe his, I don't know, not his greatest hits, but maybe some of his collected stuff that didn't yeah. necessarily show up in other collections. But everything I've heard about that one is really good, too. So, yeah, lots of, of choices. I think sometimes some of his collections are a little harder to track down than others, but I think they're all out there. Yeah. And I think that we are going to be highlighting one of those stories from Compulsory mm-hmm. Games. Is that right, Paul? Yes, it is. I still need to choose which one. It's, it's up to you. <laughs> but it will be from that collection at any yeah, rate. It will be. Yep. <laughs> Absolutely. Right. All right. Well, my next one is J.G. Farrell's 1970 novel, Troubles. Uh, this is part of Farrell's Empire Trilogy. Uh, which are kind of, they're, it, it, it's called a trilogy, but you could read them in any order. You could read one and not the others. You could read two and not the other one. And it's all fine because they are independent novels. But the reason he put it together as a trilogy is he's basically taking uh, snapshots of the British Empire at various stages of decay. Um, this includes then Troubles, uh, which... Uh, we'll talk about in just a second, but then the Singapore grip and the siege of Krishnapur. Uh, And Troubles goes back to 1919 and to Ireland and takes us to the Majestic Hotel. And it's, I I love this book. I, it was up for the lost booker about a decade ago because uh, there, there was a period of time after the Booker was started where they changed the calendar dates of eligible books. And so there was a, a bunch of books published that were never eligible for the Booker in any year. And so they decided to go back and revisit that and Troubles uh, got on there. It may have been the winner, if I remember right. I, I, I could be wrong, but at any rate, it was a very good uh, book from that list. And... I was surprised it's a thick one, but I loved every minute of reading it and uh, remember reading it kind of compulsively over, over, it took a while, maybe a week or two to read, but reading it felt like all the time because I was really enjoying it and really loved the description of the majestic. And here's a little part where Farrell describes this, this hotel. He says, in those days, the majestic was still standing in Kilnalo. At the very end of a slim peninsula covered with dead pines leaning here and there at odd angles. At that time, there were probably yachts there too during the summer, since the hotel held a regatta every July. These yachts would have been beached on one or other of the sandy crescents that curved out toward the hotel on each side of the peninsula. But now, both pines and yachts have floated away, 
and one day the high tide may very well meet over the narrowest part of the peninsula, made narrower by erosion. As for the regatta, for some reason it was discontinued years ago, before the Spencers took over the management of the place, and a few years later still, the Majestic itself followed the boats and preceded the pines into oblivion by burning to the ground. But by that time, of course, the place was in such a state of disrepair that it hardly mattered. Uh, even in 1919, this Majestic is dwindling. It's not a place many people go. It has a few remaining elderly guests, which more serves to remind everybody that time has passed, <laughs> that you know they, they're almost uh, remnants of, a, of an old time uh, waiting to, uh, to die as well. And one of my favorite parts about it is that the, there are many rooms that haven't been touched in years. You know, this place just, there's no point in, in even going to some of these rooms. And so they've been taken over by cats. Cats are just thriving in the Majestic <laughs> at, at this time. Um, but there, there is, a, you know, a meeting here. And uh, there's some youth that, that comes to this hotel. Um, but of course, this isn't a, a book about uh, a rekindling or, you know, reshaping the majestic to become it to return to its old glory. It is about people realizing its downfall. And, you know, it's from the Empire Trilogy. So there's a political reason for that, as, as well as a, a narrative reason for all of that. But I really, I, I really liked it. It's, it's, it's troubles, right? It's about Ireland and about the troubles themselves mm-hmm. to an extent, you know, uh, back in the, at the time that James Joyce was, was writing about some Irish politics and such in 1919 and really, again, a, a really good one. Um, Paul, I know that you haven't read it yet and Ben mm-hmm. O'Connell is going to, to probably be reaching out to us on Twitter after he hears this to say, Paul, when are you going to read these books? I know. Man? He's going to unfriend me pretty soon if I don't get on it. <laughs> no, every time they're discussed, I'm like, again, a recurring theme. Why have I not read those yet? So yep, they'll be going on the pile. <laughs> um, Jackie, have you had a chance to read uh, any of these uh, feral books or troubles in particular? I haven't, but it has been recommended to me in the past, and it's definitely a book I want to read, even more so, I think, after your description, Trevor. So, um, yeah, it's it's definitely one for the future for me. So, yeah, I, brilliant. I really love another aspect of hotel novels that I, I'm not sure we've touched on entirely is sometimes the way hotels can remind you of a better past. You know, yeah. the I, I think of like Grand Budapest Hotel, yeah. where we see the hotel in its glory days, you know, between the wars, people going there, it's maintained. Mm. There's a there's that staff keeping it a well-run oiled machine that is just great, but then you see it later on and mm. it's, you know, got moldy problems in the tubs. It's it just looks like it's it looks like it should be put a, put down, you know, yeah. um, after a time. And that sense of the haunting of the, you know, and, and maybe the same way when I drive around in the West now, we often pass closed little down, you know, roadside motels and hotels yeah. that you wouldn't want to stay at, even though they're still going, because mm. you'd be the only one there. And again, psycho comes to mind, you know, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's, it's, it's strange that this, these hotels can also be harbingers of the past and uh, haunt in that way. But mm-hmm. mm. All right. Well, 
Jackie, do you want to round us out here? We'll, yes. we'll hear your last yeah, one. Indeed. So my last one is The Fortnight in September by R.C. Sheriff, which I think was written and published in the early 30s. And um, it's set in, um, set in England. I'm slightly bending the description of hotel here because it's, um, it actually features a guest house a seaside guest house rather than a hotel. So it's, a, I suppose, more lower key kind of version of a hotel, but the, the hotel is kind of quite um, significant in the novel. And it centres around um, a quite an ordinary family, the Stevens family, um, and it's set in the early 1930s. And they live in Dulwich in London. So um, they take an annual holiday and every year they go uh, to Bognor to the Sea View boarding house where they've been going for the past 20 years. So they are a family of kind of habit and ritual and they kind of enjoy the fact that they are going back to the same place year in, year out. And Mr. Stevens, the head of the family, looks forward to his annual fortnight in September. They pick the same fortnight every year. He looks forward to it all year and, you know, it's a kind of a, a respite from work for him. And um, his wife accompanies him down there. She's, um, she's a housewife and kind of looks after the house and she kind of worries about everybody else in the family. So she doesn't necessarily enjoy the holidays very much herself because she's kind of consumed with little worries and fears over, you know, ensuring that everything in the holiday goes right and she wants everyone to have a good time but she's kind of so worried about everything that she almost doesn't have time to enjoy things herself and they've got three children who are also accompanying them on this holiday um, so the three children are um, the eldest is Mary who's 19 years old and she's a seamstress then there's 17-year-old Dick, who's just started work as a clerk. And 10-year-old Ernie, who's an excitable young boy. And, you know, you can't kind of separate him from his yacht, his toy yacht. He just wants to have fun. And, you know, he's just kind of there to experience and soak up the holiday. And it's, it's a really lovely novel of simple, small pleasures of life's kind of quiet hopes and ambitions and secret fears and concerns. And it's got this wonderful kind of comforting, nostalgic feel because the Stevens family are going to the same place year in, year out. So um, the boarding house itself is is kind of seen better days it's very much on the slide now it's managed and run by Mrs Huggett who's recently lost her husband so now she's widowed she doesn't have a man around the place to kind of fix things and it's starting to look quite shabby and also you know there are lots of shiny new hotels springing up elsewhere in Bognor with you know lights and entertainments and fancy things to offer to people but the Stevens kind of feel this loyalty to Mrs Huggett because they've been going there year in year out and it's kind of a bit of a home from home from for them so even though it's a bit kind of shabby and worn around the edges 
they they continue to go there even where other customers and visitors have kind of moved on to bigger and brighter things um and it's kind of a novel as well about the passing of time so where the family are at with two children who are now sort of in early adulthood this could well be the very last holiday as a as a family before Mary and Dick kind of fly the nest so Mary for example when she's on holiday in this particular fortnight that is the focus of this book um, she has a bit of a romance with a, a local guy who's an actor and is touring and acting with a, a local theatrical company um, so it, it may well be that that romance is just a fling or it could turn into something more permanent. Um, and even if it doesn't, you know, there will be other men for Mary to, to kind of hook up with. So it could well be her last holiday. And then Dick, who's the 17-year-old, the clerk, he's just started work. During the holiday, it gives him time to think about um, his work he's not really enjoying it very much and he comes to a kind of a realization as to why he's not enjoying work and so he kind of resolves to change an aspect of his life when he gets back so um, a little bit like Grand Hotel you know people are changed a little bit by the experience of this holiday but it's in this case it's less about their interactions with other people it's more than having time away on holiday to kind of reflect on their lives and look back on past disappointments and think to the future about how they can kind of perhaps have a, a better, more positive year ahead. But it's this wonderful kind of very comforting, charming novel full of good and nourishing things. It's the absolute epitome of a comfort read. I know you've done comfort reading in the past and I, I wouldn't be surprised if it had cropped up in that discussion because it's it's just such a wonderful novel um, and it's been recommended for example by Kazuo Ishiguro apparently it's one of his um, favorite novels and at the beginning of lockdown in 2020 there was an article in the Guardian where various writers were recommending books that you know they were thinking of returning to or they would recommend to others for lockdown and Kazuo Ishiguro recommended this particular book um, because he kind of felt it was you know an ideal read and I do wonder because the family are called the Stevens family whether he actually then consciously mm. named <laughs> Stevens in remains of the day remains of the day after Mr Stevens in in this particular novel so it kind of has an an extra resonance from from that perspective it's published over here by Persephone Books who normally publish women writers so it's quite an unusual book in their list really because R.C. Sheriff is is a man and he wrote Journey's End the play for example but this is just a lovely comforting wonderful novel that's not sugary or saccharine in any way but just really you know full of all the good things and if you ever want a fabulous comfort read this is the one that I would mm. recommend perhaps along with the Enchanted April by mm. Elizabeth von Arnhem which isn't set in a hotel but features a wonderful Italian villa <laughs> so that's my final choice so I'm stretching the the boundaries a little bit but it's just such a lovely novel and 
I thought it was kind of quite a nice note for me to to kind of round out my three on. I don't know if either of you have read it or um, are familiar with it. No, I've seen I've seen it mentioned, but I have not read it. And I will yeah. just say, since you picked the topic, I think you have authority to stretch. The yes, definition, <laughs> however you want to. Excellent. <laughs> no, that sounds wonderful. You're three for three. I'm adding all three of your recommendations yeah. to my list. It sounds cool. Yeah. Well, I see it quite often because on Twitter, I every Friday I say "Happy Weekend." What are you reading? You know, mm-hmm. kind of thing. And there are a lot of people who put. Uh, the the fortnight in september yeah especially at this time of year and i remember last year thinking okay next september i'm gonna grab it and (laughs) i i forgot until you know for this weekend someone put it on the list again and so i i post about it and say hey everybody here's the here here's the uh the you know the books people are reading kind of thing Mm. and that popped up again and i thought i i didn't even pick it up yet uh, so I am anxious to, and I did almost stretch the definition to include the enchanted April, but because <laughs> I I've yeah. talked about it a lot, I thought that was I'll, your book I'll of the year last year, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. I, I love, loved yeah. that one. Such but a wonderful novel. Yeah. It's interesting too, with both of those, you know, kind of showing the holiday aspect of it yeah. as well, like being able to, to tie it to the season or the, the time of year. Like I'm mm. going to go spend the April here um, and the, the freshness of all of that and kind of the lull of September. It sounds like with this, I, I love that kind yeah. of, kind of well, stuff. And what you said, Jackie, I thought was really interesting about the idea of being somewhere away from your life. And that mm. gives you this perspective that you don't have when you're mm-hmm. in the middle of the day to day. And so sometimes yeah. that's, you know, an epiphany, or sometimes it's just more of like a chance to reflect on the good or the bad in your life. But I thought that was a really interesting and important thing Mm. that I don't think we've touched on is just physically or emotionally being outside of your life for a few days or a week or however long it is. Sometimes you're like, wow, I got a whole new perspective on things that I didn't have before. And that's such an important part of this book. I think it's kind of one of the, the key aspects is having, you know, each each member of the family has that time to think, perhaps apart from Ernie, who's just kind of busily, you know, getting on enjoying himself and having fun. Um, but the, you know, the, the four adults do have that quiet reflection time and each of them has their own challenge, their own um, hopes and ambitions, their own concerns and fears that they're grappling with. And, and through the course of the holiday, they kind of have that chance to work them through. And it's, it's really lovely to see. Yeah, that sounds really good. All right, Paul. Let's, All right. Let's so, of course, Jackie had to take us to a nice comforting <laughs> place, and then I'm going to just ruin it all. Um, I had started <laughs> to creep into the the unsettling with my last pick, and this time we're just going all in. So my last pick is The Shining by Stephen King. Um, <laughs> this is a story I think probably everybody knows, mm-hmm. either from the book or the movie, or at least has some idea Um, But I just figured there's no way we can talk about hotel books without touching on it. And also, I mean, I have to do some justice to my home state because this is probably the most famous (laughs) book that was set in Colorado. So, um, you know, I won't go over too much because, like I said, I think most people probably know, but it mainly takes place in the fictional Overlook Hotel. It's an isolated, uh, haunted resort hotel that's up in the Colorado Rockies. It's based on a real hotel, the Stanley hotel that's in Estes park. Your backyard, so, right, Paul? The, exactly. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, the Stanley is not very far away from here, actually. When I go up to the Boulder <laughs> Bookstore, it's just right up the hill. So I just love the story about how Stephen King got this idea. So I, apparently he needed a break from Maine, and he basically did the whole spin the globe and stick your finger somewhere, and it landed on Boulder, Colorado. And so he and his wife moved there for a short time, and they went up and stayed at the Stanley Hotel in Estes Park. And apparently, according to the story, they were the only two guests in the hotel that night. And he says, when we arrived, they were just getting ready to close for the season. And we found ourselves the only guests in the place with all those long, empty corridors. And so they're sitting there having their dinner in the grand dining room, and they're completely alone. There was basically one choice for dinner because that was all that was left because they were closing up the kitchen. Um, And he says that there was taped orchestral music that was playing in the rooms. And there was just that one, you know, place where they're sitting. And so it's just this very eerie echoing idea. And he says, except for our table, all the chairs were up on the tables. So the music is echoing down the hall. And I mean, it was like God had put me there to hear that and see those things. And by the time I went to bed that night, I had the whole book in my mind. So I I love that story. And whether it's the movie or the book, it's that idea of, for one thing, it's this big bustling place that it's kind of what we were talking about earlier. There's those echoes of either for that season or for all of time, it is kind of closed down. (laughs) And so there's all of these memories in this history there, but it's just kind of haunting the place, you know, literally in this case. Um, (laughs) And so, yeah, there's a couple of really good quotes that I came across from this book. And one of them is the whole place was empty, but it wasn't really empty because here in the overlook, things just went on and on here in the overlook, all times were one. And so again, this is taking on the kind of the spooky supernatural aspect, but I still think even in more of a realistic point of view, when you go into a place like a hotel where there's years of history and so many people have come in and out and so many things have happened, I think that that really does capture that feeling of, you know, all those lives and all the people that have been in and out of there. I think that's something Mm -hmm. that I always think about when I'm in a hotel. And then another good quote, any big hotels have got scandals, just like every big hotel has got a ghost. Why? Hell, people come and go. Sometimes one of them will pop off in his room, heart attack or stroke or something like that. Hotels are superstitious places. No 13th floor, no 13th floor or room 13. No mirrors on the back of the door you come in through, stuff like that. So again, you know, it's just that whole idea mm. of histories, you know, anytime you go there, you don't know what took place in the rooms around you that night or any other night. And the older the hotel is, you know, there's just more history, both the good and the bad. So Mm. Stephen King just does a wonderful job of, of kind of capturing that in this book. And, you know, again, he takes it to kind of the literal ghost, you know, because as most people probably know, Danny, the, the younger son has the shining, which is kind of this ability to kind of pick up on things that are supernatural Mm -hmm. or that are going on. And so he kind of resonates with a lot of the ghosts in the history that go on in the hotel. And as his dad slowly starts to have a breakdown and and become more violent and unsettled, they are locked up in this hotel by themselves, this family. And it's this feeling of isolation in this big echoing hotel that's filled with the ghosts of the past. And, And so, I don't know. I mean, this has got to be one of my favorite Stephen King novels, you know, mm. it just, it, it encapsulates everything that he's so good at, I think. So um, Jackie, I got the impression that this is not one that has made it across your path yet. Um, <laughs> I haven't read it. I have seen the film a few times mm-hmm. and yeah, I think the film is, I guess, iconic, isn't it? I know that's an overused Absolutely. word, but I think genuinely in this instance, it's probably justified. 
Um, mm-hmm. But I, I certainly think I, you know, if I wanted to go back to Stephen King, this is the one I would go for. Either this one or Misery, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, but yes, yeah, I'm, I'm not a big reader of kind of pure horror, but mm-hmm. the hotel setting definitely interests me. Yeah, I know. and it, it's it really comes across, I think, from what I, you know, what you've said about it there, but also from the film. Yeah, there's that scene in the mm. in the Kubrick film where Danny is riding his big wheel and he's going, and it, it's this perfectly shot where the camera is right above him and you're kind of following him, but you can kind of see what he's seeing. And he's just going through yeah. all the different parts of the hotel and going down the hallways and you just see room after room going by and they all look exactly yeah. the same. And it's just yeah. a little, kind of gives you the chills because he just, obviously in the setting, you know that there are things going on and then he stops right at room 217 and just that whole idea of all these lives that have been lived and these horrific things that have taken place mm. there. Oh, so good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I didn't know that story that you shared, Paul, or at least if I did, I've forgotten it about Stephen King going there kind of on the last day of its season. That is portrayed so well in the book. And I think in mm. the film of here's the bustle, here's everybody, you know, here, the cooks are all leaving, yeah. things are banging and then you're alone. You know, that's it's an just, amazing just story. You. I know. Uh, I think that's 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 a good way to to hunker down. You know, to for one of these nights when you're alone in the in the fall. <laughs> exactly. a, a great winter book as well, because that's mm-hmm. that's what they're doing. They're they're tending that over the the harsh winter. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that's definitely one of my favorite Stephen King novels as well. And one of my favorite movies of all time, oh, too. So and, and quite different. If you only know the story through the movie, mm-hmm. I think that the book has a lot more um, oh, going on. Well, a lot more, maybe the wrong word, uh, different things going on yeah. than the movie. I, I think the movie is a masterpiece. And, and you know, I kind of appreciate Kubrick for saying, I'm just going to take this as inspiration for a story rather than yeah. a faithful adaptation. Yeah, yeah. But the book's quite it's the same, but also quite different. And right. um, really, really love both of them. Very I'm much. intrigued. So. Yeah. <laughs> it's fascinating because Stephen King actually really hated the mm-hmm. movie, which is so odd because to me, it, wow. there are big departures, but it really does capture yeah. to me so much. So it's really interesting to me that he had such a strong mm. reaction because I think they have much more in common than they do apart. But mm. yeah, yeah, very interesting. interesting. Mm-hmm. Oh, well, okay. I'm, I'm going to take us back to the not so creepy, good, but the sad, the lonely, the heartbroken. <laughs> um, you both know where I'm going. Uh, yeah. I wanted to pick <laughs> Anita Bruckner's Hotel du Lac. Uh, mm-hmm. Anita Bruckner's such a, a wonderful writer. And this was the first of her books that I ever read. Um, it's been several years and I read it because it was a Booker winner that I hadn't read and thought, oh, I'll, I'll read it. I didn't know anything about her and I quite liked it, but I didn't think too much of it until a while later when I started visiting some of her other work and realized this is speaking to me and telling me things that are very important. I wonder if Hotel Duloc does the same thing. And, you know, if, if I just kind of miss stuff and I it did, I, I love this book. I love, well, I love her books in, in general, but Hotel Duloc takes place at a hotel 
out of season. <laughs> kind of, just like the shiny. No, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, out of season, more meaning, you know, it's just not the vacation time of year. It's open, it's running. There are other guests, but not as many. And it, another thing that's interesting about hotels, if you go to them out of season, you kind of go when people who are there also can afford to go. You know, there's a reason people go to hotels out of season. Um, it isn't just that that's the time of year that they took off for a vacation. It might be the only time that they can take off for a vacation or the time when they can afford to go to one of these places that they want to go to because it's cheaper out of season. Um, this is Edith Hope is her name, and she has left her life behind to go to the Hotel du Lac uh, because she's just kind of ended an affair with a married man. Her friends are a little bit disappointed in, in her and tell her you need to you need to take a break you know go think about life go think about yourself go think about your choices edith you know they're they're maybe not the best friends and the most supportive friends um edith goes to the hotel she she is a she is a romance author and so she writes stories about successful romances though she herself has had none and is often in these predicaments where she she kind of wants um to be able to settle down she wants to be able to pass time with someone that she loves. It's not about the passion for her. It's about the, the just the love, the security and the, the, that she doesn't have and has never had. And yet has idealized in her mind, maybe rightly, maybe wrongly. And so that's what she wants in life. When she gets to the Hotel du Lac, there of course there are other people there and she starts figuring out who they are and, and, trying to evaluate their life and it makes her reflect on her own. But one of the guests is kind of the obnoxious, uh, wealthy Mr. Neville who tries to teach her lessons uh, throughout the novel about how to behave and how, you know, what, what she wants is not what is real. She's never going to get it. And ultimately he ends up proposing to her um, in, in an interesting way. You know, I remember that surprising me and, I'm not going to go where all of this goes, but the the hotel as being a place where she can get away from her day-to-day life, meet a whole bunch of new people, and maybe instigate a revolution uh, in her mind. Um, this is this is another one of those novels that I would say is kind of it, you know, the quintessential um, mm. example of that that uh, trope, uh, uh, mm. if if it is a trope. And I love how it's written. A lot of this is Edith writing letters to her former lover, uh, David. And and this the yearning she has, but the, the desire she also has to, to suggest, I'm okay and I'm strong. And while I want these things, I don't need them. You know, she's, she's really kind of a mess and doesn't quite know how to be honest with herself mm-hmm. either. And... Uh, just just so so good all of all of Bruckner's books have been treats mm. that I've read and you know I think I'm glad that this one won the booker because if it didn't I don't know I don't know if I would have ever discovered her work I don't know mm. what it would have done for her career it's her fourth novel she mm. never won the booker again was sure you know was on the list a few times but I do kind of wonder sometimes if it hadn't if it hadn't been for the booker would she have continued to be published, you know, with her quiet novels? 
Um, hopefully so. Hopefully it wouldn't have made any difference in, in her career or, or the books that we got from her. Um, but I do think it would have made a difference for, for me and my availability, you know, my, my ability to see her books and, and get a hold of them. But at any rate, Hotel du Lac, mm. uh, going to, you know, it, it actually is a book that makes me appreciate sometimes the idea of going to a hotel out of season. It's a lot mm-hmm. less hustle and bustle, mm. <laughs> you know, maybe the menu's not quite as, as uh, rich as, as it would be if you went during the high time, mm. but the piece that you might get as being more of a loner in this hotel, mm-hmm. uh, does appeal to me. Uh, but again, that's, that's only partially what this, what this book is about. Um, there's a lot of, a lot of really lovely passages about what it means to find love, both idealized and mm. I think getting really to the heart of heart of it sometimes, you know, the ability to, to find someone that you can grow old with. It isn't just about the moment is, uh, again, um, pretty poignant in this. And I think Bruckner's own perspective is, you know, from her own life and experiences of being someone who never married and is often mm. writing about women who don't marry. Uh, I think it's it's powerful, and um, you know, Paul and I talk a lot about the life, you know, the the the, the quiet life. Mm. Uh, Bruckner's ability to get into some of these heads of that person just sitting over there, you know, there's that woman over in the hotel. Um, she's been here for a couple of days now. She's pretty quiet, friendly, but look at all the turmoil that's going on mm. inside. Yeah, uh, I just I love it. Yeah, I'm so but glad think, you picked that one. I think both of you have read this one, right? Yeah. Mm. Yeah, yeah, I absolutely love it as well now and had a similar experience to you, Trevor, in that I first read it when I was probably too young, I think, to mm-hmm. really fully appreciate all of its subtleties. Um, I read it when it won the Booker in the sort of early to mid-1980s when I was sort mm-hmm. of very early 20s and it didn't quite speak to me then. I didn't have enough life experience, but then I came back to Bruckner and started reading her novels again in order and got to Hotel Dulac and reread it. Actually, reread it a couple of times, and you know, just completely different book spoke to me very differently. Um, and I think what she captures very well with Edith is the sort of dilemma that somebody in Edith's position has between does she compromise and perhaps mm-hmm. marry someone that she doesn't love for security and companionship or does she you know choose to remain single and perhaps have a less satisfying life in terms of lifelong companionship but she has the independence and freedom to do what she wants live in her own house do the things she wants to do from day to day and and I think through Edith she kind of explores some of those options for women in Edith's position very, very well, because, you know, exactly as you say, that idealized vision of love isn't always really achievable. Um, so it's, yeah, just a, a, a beautiful book, brilliantly written. Um, I love the interiority of it. Um, and mm. then from a hotel perspective, you just have the most wonderful um, descriptions of this hotel that seems to have kind of evolved through word of mouth. It's got such a kind of revered um, <laughs> reputation that it, it doesn't advertise. It just gets its business through recommendations and word of mouth. And it's a very sort of 
kind of classic old-fashioned middle european kind of establishment so that's mm -hmm. almost from another age um but you know brilliantly done so great choice i think yeah very great choice well i'm glad to end on it because it makes me excited to go on holiday again whereas paul your last choice made me think i yeah. you know I'm, I'm fine being home <laughs> right exactly now i think i i think it was good to end on a more positive note for sure yeah <laughs> well and certainly the shining was one that i had as as a potential on my list until until you you put it on there i'm glad you mm -hmm. did um we almost called this well, we, and we probably would have had I had I remembered at the beginning of the episode the the Mrs. Palfrey at the Claremont <laughs> Memorial list. I think all of yeah. us may have put that on our list, yeah, but yeah. realizing that, and also realizing that Paul, you and I have have talked about Mrs. Palfrey at the Claremont quite a bit over the last year. We did a mm. giveaway of a copy of it. Um, we we thought, well, maybe instead of making it the the book that we, we chat about a ton on here. Let's just say, Hey, another great hotel novel. Yeah. Um, but I, but, but Jackie, I would love to get a, give you an opportunity to talk about it if you'd like to, before we, yeah, before yeah. we close. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah. I mean, it's, it's probably one of the first hotel novels that springs to mind. Um, mm -hmm. You know, as you say, it's, it's a real classic. Um, I think Elizabeth Taylor, perhaps like Anita Bruckner, actually, just has such a, an innate ability to get to the heart of human behaviour. And um, perhaps a little bit like William Trevor as well in, in his more poignant moments, has that wonderful ability to balance and marry really deep poignancy with some wonderful humour. Um, hmm. wonderful humor through observations of all of our foibles and odd little habits and idiosyncrasies. And I, I think you really see a lot of that in the kind of spectrum of characters in, in the hotel that Mrs. Palfrey interacts with. But I also think with Mrs. Palfrey, it's just a wonderful book about aging and about the value of small kindnesses and how we all need to feel valued and loved by other people, irrespective of our age and circumstances. And I think the relationship between Mrs. Palfrey and Ludo, the young lad who kind of acts as her stand-in mm -hmm. grandson, um, is just so beautifully drawn and, yeah, very, very touching. So, yeah, it's, it's a wonderful novel. Really, and really. and so sad too. It's touching, but yeah. it's sad because of what it's the the whole reason that it even exists in the first place is due to yeah. a lack and uh, for both of them. Um, but great that they kind of have that. Yeah, what a what a wonderful wonderful book. Mm -hmm. um, Film spotting, a podcast that I've brought up a few times. When there are books that come up or movies that come up a lot on theirs, they they kind of put it in. Uh, uh, I, I think they may call it the Pantheon 
where it's like, hey, here are the movies that we could probably put on almost any list that came up. (laughs) (laughs) And maybe we need something like that too, Paul, because I think I think you you probably could have figured out a way to make Lonesome Dove apply to this list. And I absolutely was tempted to put in, and then there were none. (laughs) Even though that's a house, you know, it still feels like they're going to a hotel to stay, Um, you know. But I thought both of those, I I don't know if you could have with Lonesome Dove, but. uh, (laughs) Oh, I could have. There's uh, the the hooker with the heart of gold. I was just going to say, they're at the whorehouse at the the, the saloon. (laughs) There you go. Okay, good. Glad we got it out there. And, uh, And of course, and then there were none. So there are probably some, we should probably adopt something like that too. Books Ooh. that books that could come up on almost any list that we we wanted to make them apply to, but right. we want to keep things a little bit fresh for our listeners. But Mrs. Palfrey at the Claremont, I don't think we can talk about enough, or at least we haven't yet. So I, wow. I was very glad to to hear your thoughts on it, Jackie, because mm. I only read it for the first time last year when NYRB published it in December ish, mm-hmm. yeah. and boy, that was. A, a great reading memory for me, yeah. a great, mm-hmm. a great experience. Um, any others that were on your honorable mention list that, that you guys were like, ah, oh, wish I could put this in there, but I got to go with something else. Jackie, do you have any? Oh yeah, go ahead, Jackie. Um, yeah, I, I had one other actually that is probably worthy of mention. Um, and it's kind of in a similar category to Vicky Barnes grand hotel in that, you know, there's lots of, different characters, different backgrounds coming together to the hotel for various kind of reasons, mostly holidays in this instance. And it's a novel called The Feast by Margaret Kennedy. And it was published, I think, in 1947. It was just after the war. And it's it's a really interesting novel. It's part mystery. It's part social comedy. Um, it's part allegory. It's, again, very, very cleverly constructed, like the Vicky Balm novel. And it starts with a tragedy. So you kind of know certain aspects about the denouement at the beginning. Um, but you, you kind of don't know everything. You know that there's an accident and the hotel kind of perishes and basically the, a cliff. It's situated in... Cornwall on a cliffside the cliff collapses and the hotel kind of disappears into the sea and is buried under a pile of rubble and a number of people in the hotel perish and die in this um, horrific incident Um, and you learn the identity of one of seven people who die but you don't learn the others and then it kind of flashes back to a week beforehand and you see all of the the guests and the staff in the hotel and you're kind of trying to work out who survived and who died Mm. and um, it's very clever because it it there's a theme running through it that is constructed around the seven deadly sins so um, people's behavior various guests and members of staff their behavior mirror one of the seven deadly sins Um, so it's just really very, very clever and very, very well constructed on a number of different levels and, and so entertaining. It was republished a couple of years ago by Faber Books over Faber and Faber over here in the UK. Um, but that's well worth seeking out if if you're looking for um, a good hotel read in, in that sort of category and just a great page turner. 
I feel like I've heard a lot about that one in the last year yeah. and I'm not sure why if it was just the reissue or if it was yeah like I don't know if backlisted or somebody gave it a little boost or what but oh, I do feel good. like I think yeah, they've talked about the constant good. nymph yeah by Margaret um, Kennedy I don't think they've done a full episode. You're right there. Margaret Kennedy episode was on the constant nymph, but Andy Miller did read it um, maybe six or nine months ago. It's definitely had a shout out on backlisted at the beginning where they kind of go through their recent reading. And Andy is a big fan. He's definitely talked about it. Yeah. Anytime that there's a book that surges like that, I just assume it's probably yeah. Andy Miller related. <laughs> he has the power to uh, raise books from the dead. Yeah. yeah. No, yeah that sounds really good. Effect. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'll just quickly touch on a few, you know, I won't go into detail, but I was thinking there's a lot of kind of the, the crime and noir hotel mm-hmm. angle. And one that came to mind for me was Black Wings Has My Angel by Elliot Ooh, Chase. Yes. Yeah. And that has a lot of where they're, you know, it's a convict who's escaped and he ends up with a call girl and they're kind of on the lam, you know, staying in all these various hotels that actually, a lot of that actually takes place in, in Denver and Colorado as well. Um, but then that one, and then the price of salt by Patricia Highsmith, it's Ooh, not yes. a hotel novel, but Mm. A big section of it does include the two women kind of somewhat on the run and they're staying in different hotels. And then one more that in that same vein, again, it's not based on that, but Lolita, um, there's the Mm. whole part near the end where Humbert Humbert, you know, is on the lam with her um, and they're staying in a lot of those Mm. different kind of, you know, roadside hotels, Route 66 type hotels. Mm. So those were three that I kind of grouped together in my head. And then, just a couple from Brian Moore. Um, like, again, this one's bending the the rules a little bit, but the lonely passion of Judith Hearn is more of a boarding house. Mm. Um, but then speaking of kind of the assignations and kind of the, that side of things, um, he has one called The Doctor's Wife, yeah, which is really, really good, um, which kind of, it's a couple who are having an affair and some of the stuff that goes into that, but um, those were a couple categories mm. in, a, in a few books that I thought fit into those that are all really good books. Mm. Well, and on that line of crime, you know, noir seediness, what about Lilac in Nancy Drew? No. <laughs> there you go. That was, that was one I asked my wife, I said, what are some that you can think of? And she goes, okay, you're probably not going to, and I haven't even read it, but she goes, that was my favorite Nancy Drew book as a, <laughs> as a, a young girl reading those because it was so scary. And I, I, I just, you know, the, the, the end part, I yeah. think there are a lot of good mysteries and, and crime things that happen in hotels. Um, and she also recommended Green Glass House by Kate Milford. My kids that I, that. I I see quite a bit, and I think she said it takes place over Christmas, so I should read it to the our kids over Christmas time, and mm. I think I might do that this year, but I haven't read that one. Yeah. Um, or what about The Mouse and the Motorcycle, if we're going into kids' books? Doesn't the beginning... <laughs> I, I feel like the beginning of that ends up with Ralph driving through the lobby on his little motorcycle, if I remember right, so I may I be wrong. So. But, I think yeah. so. <laughs> and then we, we probably, if we had turned this into in novels, we could have listed a bunch of fantasy books, Paul. We go back to The Wheel of Time. How oh, many yeah. ins does Robert Jordan mention by name? Hundreds? Yeah. Probably thousands. <laughs> you got the prancing pony in the Fellowship of the Ring. You know, maybe not maybe maybe not uh, quite on point with all the things we've talked about. Right. But, but lots of but, mead and hunks of bread and hunks of cheese right. and all those kind of <laughs> right. Yeah. 
<laughs> so anyway, uh, it was a delight to talk with you both today. Jackie, thanks so much for coming on and for suggesting this great topic. It's been a lot of fun. And I, I am excited to go and uh, and start Mrs. Eckdorf in O'Neill's Hotel. And I obviously have been meaning to uh, get to the fortnight in September as well. So Wonderful. Thank you so much that. for having me on the podcast. It's It's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you both and um, really good fun. I've enjoyed it immensely and I've got several recommendations, new recommendations here for <laughs> hotel novels to seek out. So thank you so much. Well, and one thing too, I... I I pay attention in these episodes to see, okay, when, when might we have, you know, this person back, Jackie, there are so many topics that I think we could say, <laughs> Jackie, do you want to join us? I mean, yeah. William Trevor, uh, Elizabeth Taylor, <laughs> I mean, just to I'd name like, to a couple. Yeah. <laughs> I'd love to come back if you'd, if you'd have me, but um, yeah, it's been be an fun. absolute pleasure. So thank you so much, both of you. Thank you, Jackie. All right. Paul, any last words? I don't think so. Other than just the same thing, I'm going to go grab a big stack of books from today and, and maybe add a few that I don't have to my to be purchased list. So thank you both. <laughs> it was wonderful. Yep. Always fun. All right. Thanks listeners. We'll be back here in a couple of weeks in October for some, you know, maybe Paul's suggestions get you in the mood for some spooky reads, but we'll see you then. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Mooks and the Gripes podcast. You can follow the Mooks and the Gripes and get show notes and book and film reviews at mooksandgripes.com. On Twitter, you can follow Trevor at Mooks and Paul at BiblioPaul. You can also get information about future shows on our Patreon. If you'd like to donate to the show, anything and everything, even a dollar a month helps and is deeply appreciated. You can become a Patreon at patreon.com mooks. Until next time, 